Winter, 2017, Durham, North Carolina. When my neighbor and friend, Hank, and his live-in girlfriend, Amy, were arrested for operating a working meth lab across the street from us, and when Kent and I turned out to be Hank's only friends, we learned what it means to love the stranger. We learned that when you love the stranger, you become strange. And we learned that when you love the stranger who gets arrested, you lose the right to protect your reputation. We learned that standing with Jesus and putting the hand of the stranger into the hand of the Savior always means putting yourself on the edge of danger. And sometimes it means that your decent and moral neighbors will hate you. Sometimes it means that you will labor to love them, opening your home and your heart, and they will walk away thinking you are a fool. And this is how things went for us for quite some time after Hank and Amy were arrested. For a year, we labored in love, and yet the anger in our neighborhood remained thick. It actually made sense to us on some level. Our neighbors had been suspicious of Hank since the moment he moved in. When he didn't cut his grass for three months, you know, that was a sign that maybe there was a problem. When he allowed his 100-pound pit bull to run the streets without collar and tags, you know, that was a sign there was probably a problem. But we weren't really defending Hank because we didn't know him. We had labored hard to get to know him. We shared meals, we shared the gospel, we shared holidays. And then one day we woke up to police at our door because the meth lab had been exposed, Hank and Amy had been arrested, and truly nobody quite knew where we stood on things. People were angry and scared, and our property values went down. Houses didn't sell on our block the way they used to. And the house wrapped in crime scene tape, once the finest house on our block, continued to stand as an eyesore and a warning. And during this time, Kent and I lived in what felt like parallel worlds. One world took place in letters to Hank and Amy the sending of packages and books and Bibles and much private prayer. Detoxing from meth is not for the faint of heart. The other world took place nightly at our dinner table with church family and neighbors coming by for dinner, dispute, devotions, and finally prayer. And then one winter day, When we were snowed out of church, something happened that broke the cycle of anger. A snowstorm in the southern part of the United States is a disarming event. This one started at 4 a.m. on a Saturday. Snow and ice came down fast, and we were all homebound. By mid-morning, all local churches were canceling Sunday services, So Kent asks me to write something 
on the Nextdoor app, that's our social media app that organizes all 300 households in our neighborhood. He asked me to invite the whole neighborhood to have worship with us that Lord's Day. So this is what I posted. Dear neighbors, because of hazardous road conditions, the church that my husband pastors, the First Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham, will be closed tomorrow. We are therefore inviting all of you to join us for a worship service at 10.30 a.m. at our home. We will sing psalms and Kent will deliver a sermon. And after worship, you are all invited to join us for a meal of soup and bread. Come as you are and bring a neighbor. And if you know anyone in our neighborhood who is in need of help, please let us know. Love in Christ, Rosaria. Well, by Saturday noon, the roads were southern bad, which means perfect for kids and sledding. Five inches of snow had already fallen, and the snow was coming down thick. The children were over the moon. After a few hours of sledding down streets in laundry baskets and boogie boards, they returned to our house, and I had a pile of children with frozen eyelashes melting in my homeschool room. A pyramid of wet, wet, of white, wet athletic socks appeared at the front door, and all of my towels and what was left of my arnica gel went to the cause of drying and mending tired bodies. Kent kept an eye on the road and enlisted the bigger kids to shovel driveways, and he started revising a sermon that he wanted our neighbors to hear. Kent had been praying about what to preach about what would bring healing and saving grace and a knowledge of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king to our angry neighbors. I marveled at the opportunity that God had given us in this neighborhood to proclaim Christ because of this crisis and to continue to have neighbors seek us out to ask where God was in all of our mess. It was a year after the arrest and yet people were still struggling to figure out who Hank was and who we are. And even after we disappointed each other again and again in our conflicting responses to Hank's crime, neighbors continued to come together regularly at our dinner table for food and for fellowship, for Bible reading and for prayer. Our family continued to pray for and write to Hank. Kent was also able to visit Hank, although visitations at the county jail are loud and public and generally not conducive to genuine conversation. Hank would always write back, always grateful to hear that his beloved dog Tank, who had become our dog by that time, was safe and loved and that the kids didn't despise him for what he had done. His helplessness to take care of his aged mother or his beloved dog made his anxiety never-ending. Hank's life of incarceration was filled with constant worry and unyielding fear. The steady fall of snow and the steady stream of children coming in for hot chocolate and then returning returning to the snow to shovel neighbors' driveways, or just pummel each other silly outside, was comforting. I kept an eye on the worsening weather and the great prospect of Lord's Day worship with neighbors, many of whom do not know the Lord. 
So I started cooking for a crowd. That afternoon, I baked whole wheat oatmeal bread and assembled Brazilian black bean soup and Indian dal. I prepared a whole chicken for the crock pot. I rinsed the rice for boiling in the morning, and I brought down the 60-cup percolator from the top pantry shelf. Kent and I have been doing this for 18 years now, anticipating a big group at our home for worship when inclement weather prohibits us getting to church. Throughout all of the years of marriage and ministry, Kent has never once viewed a weather-related church cancellation as a day off. Never once. A snow day is a day on for Kent in an evangelistic and spiritually rigorous way. So finally, Lord's Day morning arrived. I woke up and I felt sheer panic. Why had we invited all of our neighbors over on a day when we could have really had a nice quiet time of family devotions? They didn't like us anyway. Why were we doing this? What if everyone actually comes? This was not exactly outdoor barbecue weather. Would we be able to house and feed everyone? But then I had an even scarier thought. What if no one comes? So I poured my coffee and started my devotions, letting the word of God comfort my agitated heart. And after private devotions, I gathered pots of soup from the screened-in porch and put them on a low burner. I started the rice and then set the tables. The children readied the house for worship. We have been through this before, but no matter how often we do this, it is always exciting. After breakfast, we put away the almost finished Monopoly game from the coffee table in the family room. Well, Kent would be using that as a makeshift pulpit soon. And as soon as Kent prayed for our day, and I start the big percolator, my beloved neighbors start to walk through the door for worship. Missy, the two Millers, Ryan and his son, Ben, the three Muters, the five Shepherds, the Harviews, the five Mackenzies, Susanna and Mark and Eddie are already here. Some stayed overnight the night before. 28 neighbors in all, and a gaggle of extra children. Some bring pots of soup and loaves of bread and good coffee beans. I'm serving tea and coffee and hot cocoa, and the kids are embracing their friends. My daughter is squealing with delight, while my son finds places for all of the coats and boots. Bella, our small and elegant Shih Tzu, will soon be burying herself in these coats. We gather our mugs and our smiles, and we press cold cheek to cold cheek. Donna, my neighborhood prayer partner, locks arms with me, and she whispers, This is bigger than my dreams. One set of neighbors looks across the room and sees this older lady for whom they have been praying for two decades. They have longed to see her in church, in Christ, but the barriers have always seemed insurmountable. But as Psalm 147 says, the Lord who numbers and names the stars, the Lord who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds and determines the number of stars and gives to all of them their names, well, he also heals broken hearts. 
And here she is, and here they are, to behold the fruit of their 20-year-old prayer. Kent welcomes everyone and reminds us of the powerful role that Jesus bestows upon neighbors. People sit on the couch, the floor, the piano bench, the chairs that one of the children brought in from the dining room. The children distribute every Bible and Psalter in the house. We don't have enough to go around, so people sit close to each other, close enough to share. The yellow crime scene tape is glaring from the front window, and Kent just goes right there. He tells us that he will be preaching on forgiveness, on Christ's forgiveness of those who repent and believe, and of our responsive forgiveness for one another. Kent says, Jesus calls us to forgive because without forgiveness, we cannot be agents of grace or be in the path of grace. No more small talk. Kent assembles our worship service with prayer, and then he asks us to open our Psalters to Psalm 23. Kent explains that in worship, we sing a cappella without instruments. Some, in, some neighbors have been you know, through this before, and so they know what to expect. But those who haven't register a kind of panic that no meth lab across the street could possibly create. No, no, this panic had nothing to do with crystal meth or plummeting housing prices. No, the panic in the neighborhood right now was rooted in the thought that we were going to sing a cappella. The melody for the psalm that we sing is crimined. And for some, this Welsh rendition is familiar and elegant. We sing slowly. We savor how mere words weave reassurance. It goes like this. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. The waters outside are eerily frozen. And the tire swing in the front yard shimmers, encased by ice. We continue to sing. My soul, he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make within the paths of righteousness even for his own name's sake. I savor every word, each promise, each soul here. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear no evil. 
heart still. My mind, if you ever wonder what pastor's wives do when they're leading psalms and worship, my mind actually starts to wander. It, it wanders to the documentary of Temple Grandin, a professor of animal science and an autism rights leader. She studies cows, and she developed a system to move cows through a chute in order to make a slaughterhouse more humane. So paradoxical, so distasteful, and so symbolic of what secularism does to a culture. It it makes the slaughterhouse seem inevitable and innocuous. But cows are different from sheep. Cows need to be prodded from behind, but sheep must be gently led from the front and comforted on the side. And that's the only way we can walk through life and death. Jesus, our shepherd, leads gently. A table thou hast furnished me in presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint and my cup overflows. God's word rings realistic. God's, God protects us in the midst of danger, not necessarily from danger. He says in Luke 10, 3, Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I ponder this. We are singing more slowly than we do in church. Many are singing this for the first time. And the words of Christ are sinking down, down, down. We are locked in this circle, locked in each other's eyes. And then we conclude. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me. And in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. We take a breath and we look around. This is intimate business. When we sing a psalm together, we speak God's truth and God's word one to another. This is truth that is suddenly unhinged from all of our problems and our peeves and our disagreements and our disappointments and our betrayals. And some of us are experiencing this for the first time in their lives. People can be neighbors for decades and never have this kind of intimacy. Well, Kent prays for our worship. 
See, because now the worship service is just beginning. Everyone takes a deep breath. We have gotten through singing a psalm a cappella. And he asks God to be present with us, to work healing where healing is needed, and repentance where repentance is needed, and salvation where salvation is needed. Kent doesn't mince words ever. Kent is not one man in the pulpit and another man in his home. And as I watch him open the Bible, I am so deeply grateful that God allowed me to marry this man. Kent's sermon is from Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Beatitudes are so rich. Delivered to the disciples, they, they require faith to execute. And Kent starts to preach. Kent tells our neighbors, you, you can't show mercy only, you can only show mercy only if you know God's peace. And if you are still mad at Hank, then you have some spiritual work to do. Do you have God's peace? Kent concludes with a question. Have you made peace with Jesus? Do you know him? Have you repented from your sin and placed your hope in Christ alone? Today is the day of salvation. And then Kent prays. He prays for salvation where it is needed. He prays that God would help our unbelief. Nothing about this worship service is business as usual. It is all raw and open, transparent, and fundamentally risky. And after the benediction, Kent asks everyone to step inside the dining room and the kitchen and the foyer and the homeschool room into all of the rooms where I have placed table settings. And we bring the dining room chairs back to the dining room, and we also bring the piano bench and the exercise ball and really anything else that people could sit on snug aromas, and sing-song tones of neighbor talk promise good tidings. That morning, I had set places for 25 people gathering around three tables. I had underestimated, but that's okay. Some of us are happy to sit on the floor. We make an assembly line passing pots of soup through a narrow hallway. We ooh and ah over the warm bread that Maisie pulls out of the oven and over the amazing white chicken chili that Tina brought. The children pile their plates high and their bowls deep, and then they head out to the freezing cold screened-in porch to eat without the grown-ups. We talk about kids and snow and work. We talk about cancer and bad knees and politics. And then the, ta- then, and then the talk moves to Hank. Kent... Tell us how Hank is doing. I've heard that you visit him in jail, David offers as the warm bread makes another round through the tables. Kent takes a breath. Well, Hank is fragile, of course. Jail breaks a man. But Hank has just recently committed his life to Jesus. This is truth unmasked. Hank's recent faith in Jesus is not cheap news. It is the kind of news that moves mountains. Quiet descends. A a holy hush 
hovers over the table. Uh, Kent explains that Hank has been desperate for help, but there is no real earthly help for him. Uh, There is no pretending otherwise. Hank needs Jesus, the rescuer, because no one else can go where Hank has been taken. Hank has detoxed from crystal meth, and he's feeling completely, utterly lost. Hank does not need a pep talk. Hank needs Jesus, the Savior, to shepherd him through the long, dark days ahead. Hank had just been recently receiving, he had just recently received a sentence of 18 years of incarceration. At his age, that could be a life sentence. And Kent is explaining, Hank knows that his circumstances might not change. In fact, they probably won't. But Hank also knows that God won't change. Hank is reading the Bible, and he's actually praying for grace to get through each day, and he prays for all of us. And he's thankful for those of you who are praying for him. Uh, Kent is speaking softly now, and the room, once bursting with talk and laughter, is simply captive in silence. You see, Kent explains that Hank is no longer the meth addict across the street. Hank is now my Christian brother. Uh, But that's not all, he goes on to explain. Uh, There's Amy, too. Remember her? Uh, She's also sober and saved. And she prays for her children, whose parental rights had all been terminated years before. And she also prays for you in this neighborhood. I have learned over the years that Amy is a prolific letter writer. She has a beautiful cursive hand, and she has an eye for design and color. So far in prison, she has earned her GED, she has learned a new trade, and she has also been baptized. And the letter that she wrote to me describing her baptism in prison was done in a way that I will simply never forget coming up out of the water and seeing the blue sky through the arc of chain-bound hands. And while the chains came from prison, she wrote me in a letter, the hands cupped in prayer redefined those chains as belonging to Christ. It's hard to explain what happens to a community when you have this kind of conversation over the dinner table. It's a little hard to explain when the local drug addict, the man easiest to despise, commits his life to Jesus. It's hard to explain what happens to a community when a stranger moves in with matted hair, twiggy body, pockmarked from meth, and whose bizarre and dangerous behavior mark her introduction to all of us. And then when she becomes a prolific letter writer with a beautiful pen and an appreciation of poetry, when she becomes a sister in the Lord praying for the people who despise and fear her still. It's hard to explain what happens to the people who feel righteous when they compare themselves to people like Hank and Amy. 
It's hard to explain, but one of the things that happens is you realize at a dinner table like this that you righteous people are the saddest people in the world because there's simply no gospel for you. There's only a gospel for the broken, for the sinner. So I can suspect that you can imagine what happens when a conversation like this happens at a dinner table. It changes everything. And that is because the gospel changes everything. The gospel is not some private uh, situation or, or only some private situation. The gospel changes not just the fate and the future of an individual, but the gospel changes everything. God puts the lonely in families. And how does he do this? He works through you. He works through your church. He works through me. He works through my church. He works through your life. He works through your weakness. He works through the messiness of your house. He even works through the cat hair that you found in the mac and cheese before you put it on the dinner table. He works through all of this. And we see this. We see this principle as we read uh, on Saturday in Mark chapter 10. When Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or mother or brothers or sister or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But we also see this principle in Hebrews 13.4. Remember those who are in prison as though chained with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. The gospel meets us as strangers and enemies of God. And the gospel delivers belonging in the family of God. And it promises a hundredfold of these vital and intimate relationships to all who repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. I've been fascinated as I've read through the Bible many times now, praise the Lord for that, to discover that there are only two, re- two categories of lonely people in the Bible. Two categories, political prisoners and martyrs. And last I checked, there is no one as of yet in our churches who are falling into those categories. And yet we tolerate loneliness in our culture, in our family, in our communities, in our church. We tolerate it as if it's okay. It's not okay. That's, that's conduct unbecoming for a Christian to be isolated and made to stand alone in this harsh world. You see, this hundredfold now in this time is very practical. It addresses things like, where will I live? With whom will I eat dinner and pray each night? How will I face the burden of my sin and my weakness? How will I get through this grief? How will I stand here and sing some of these wonderful praise and worship songs, but they seem to leave no room for lamentation? How do I sing those week after week in church when I'm still battling an indwelling sin that dogs me, 
What if I don't feel those feelings? Where do I go with that? Why am I alone in the church? This hundredfold blessing is very practical. It will come from you or it will not come at all. It's simply the sky is not going to open wide open and hundredfold blessings will fall from it. It will come with hard gospel work. It will come with prayer. It will come with fasting. It will come with loving people who are unlovable because we were pretty unlovable once and maybe still are at times, right? It will come because we will pray for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes and the minds and the hearts of our neighbors, but we won't leave it at that. We will proclaim the gospel to them in word and in deed. People of God, I've shared with you my testimony. I don't know how many, how many meals I ate at Ken and Floyd Smith's home before the gospel that they had been proclaiming was one I could finally respond to. I think the number was about 500. It takes time, a lot of time, persevering time. Gospel life is covenantal. Gospel life is communal. And when the gospel does come with a house key, we put a nail in the coffin of our culture's obsession with individualism, which is the bedrock of secularism. When we remember the prisoner and the mistreated, we acknowledge that prison doesn't change the role of neighbor. You see, Hank and Amy have stopped being my neighbor because they have a different address. They will always be my neighbor. Christians don't throw people away. So Christian, if you believe that these are dangerous, desperate, and barbaric times, then you are right The princes of this world are demolishing what it means to be human, to be male, to be female, to be an image bearer with a soul that will last forever and a sex-differentiated body that will either live in glory in the new Jerusalem or suffer for eternity in hell. The highest achievement of atheistic modernity is this, the autonomous, freely choosing individual finding meaning in nothing but himself. A theologian named Theo Hobson have said, you know, one of the ways that you can, you can filter your culture and interpret your culture, try to figure out what's going on, is to use these three principles. You know you're in a revolution. You know when things have changed to a dangerous degree, when what was formerly despised is now celebrated. When what, when what was formerly celebrated is now despised. And when people who refuse to celebrate are despised. Major sectors of the church have gone apostate. And many more are teetering on the brink. It seems every single day we not, don't just hear a quote-unquote deconversion story, but, but uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram are filled as though they themselves are the new church of these lost friends. The threads of Christian tradition 
sewn into the social fabric of culture is a beautiful tapestry for everyone because it tends toward creation-mandated life. And likewise, its steady erasure will mean, and maybe sooner than you think, that Christians will find ourselves inhabiting a similar situation as that of the church in early Rome. And in these desperate times, Jesus is still leading you and me from the front of the line. Hospitality, I believe, is the front line of evangelism in this post-Christian world. In this post-Christian world, your words cannot be stronger than your relationships. And your home is a vital place to build those relationships. But people of God, you are an ambassador for Christ. And ambassadors live in embassies. They don't live in castles. Your carpet is not your God. Your time is not your own. Your home is an incubator and a hospital for strangers to become neighbors and neighbors to become family of God. Hospitality is the new face of spiritual warfare. Oh, people of God, please hear me. Our entire theological system is on display. The gospel comes with a house key. And if it doesn't, maybe, just maybe, you are not preaching the whole gospel. Let us pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, how we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And how thankful we are, oh God, that you sent people to gather us in, to hold us close, and to hear our sadness. Lord, I pray that this watching world would see a community of brothers and sisters living like a family of God, sent out by the church, and as a beacon in houses across our land. Oh God, may people know where to go when they are thirsty, And may people know truly, Lord, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. So, Lord, give us courage and give us love for the downtrodden and even, Lord, for the dangerous. It is truly in the matchless name of Jesus that all God's people pray and we all say, Amen.